Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Verse 25. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Verse 33. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. Father, we pray that as we get into your word today, that you would help us to see our king. Father, help us to see that, that though we're, we're living in that tension between the kingdom already being and not yet here, Lord, we have a king who is worthy to be focused on and followed and obeyed. Lord, would you give us a fresh picture of our King Jesus. And would you cause us to trust him more today. Please, Lord, we pray you'd use your word to this end. And we pray you do this by your Holy Spirit for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, everyone who agrees says, Amen. Amen. So the Gospel of Luke is the only gospel that actually has two discourses that specifically talk about what we sometimes call the end times. Discourses about uh, uh, what happens at the end of the age, at the consummation of all of God's promises. One is uh, in Luke 21, which of course we'll get to in a few weeks. And Luke 21 kind of more closely parallels like Mark chapter 13 and Matthew chapter 24. The other is what we're looking at today in Luke chapter 17. And it's really clear in Luke chapter 17 that Jesus is point is what he's uh, urging his disciples to see, especially in the light as we're going to see of the Pharisees' unbelief, is he's urging them to see that the quality of the kingdom is in the character of the king. We live in a season right now, and the seasons come many times throughout the centuries. There's been these seasons where we're thinking, this has got to be when the Lord comes back. I mean, things are a bit manic, they're nuts. And we think this is what has to happen. And, and, and it just could, very well could be. We'll talk maybe more about that when we get to chapter 21. But the thing that Jesus wanted his disciples to see in this section was the quality of his kingship. He was wanting to challenge the Pharisees and encourage the disciples about what it means to trust him as king. Because as important as it is for us to be kingdom-minded, as important as it is for us to seek first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, if we don't know the king, we won't understand the kingdom we're actually seeking after. And so when we pick it up in verse 20, we see that the Pharisees here, these religious leaders of Jesus' day, these people that were kind of the Olympic athletes, so to speak, of the spiritual world of his day, that these Pharisees, they're asking Jesus specifically something. What does he say? He says in verse 20, being asked by the Pharisees, notice, when the kingdom of God would come, then he answers them what we just read. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. So, so, so what happened with the Pharisees is, is they, like many of the, the sort of um, obedient or observant religious Jews of the first century, they, they were thinking, okay, we can't wait for God's kingdom to come in because when God's kingdom comes in, then basically all our oppressors are removed, justice finally comes in, and we reign with our God over all the earth. And so they were asking when. And asking when by itself is not a bad question. Wondering when, 
or as we'll see later on, how long, Lord, until this happens, is not a bad question. The problem is, in asking Jesus, it's a sense this is a challenge. We're seeing in Luke's gospel, aren't we, how the, the unbelief of these Pharisees, of these religious leaders, seems to be increasing day upon day, where they just don't trust Jesus. They don't believe he's God's chosen king. They don't believe he's the Messiah. And so when they're asking this, it's a test. It's kind of like, okay, fine, Mr. Smarty Pants, if you know so much, tell us when's this going to take place? What should we look for? And of course, Jesus says, no, you got this all wrong. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. In fact, he says in verse 21, notice, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, he says, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, some of your versions, if you have like the, the New International Version, it says, is within you. And there's been many, many, many sermons built around that phrase because it's a phrase that only Luke uses. The kingdom of God is within you. And it's always about you know, the kingdom starts from, from within and it starts as a seed and it grows. Or, or if you just look deep inside yourself, you'll find the kingdom of God. And, and there's a lot of sermons built around this and none of it actually is true. Because even though this is tricky to translate from Greek into English, the reality is the, the way the ESV translates this is really accurate in the context. The kingdom of God is in your midst. Because Jesus will not say to the Pharisees who don't believe him, hey, just look deep inside. The kingdom of God is within you. He's not going to say that to them. It doesn't make any sense. No, what he's trying to say to them is, listen, you're looking for the kingdom when the king is right in front of you. That's what he's saying. In a very real sense, when it comes to seeing Jesus as our king, the king in our midst, that he's with us, we need to learn to focus on him who was rejected, as we'll see in a minute, yet he still reigns. See, we don't need to see the signs of the kingdom when we have the king. We don't need to be looking, could this be it? Could that be it? We don't need to do that so much if we have the king. Again, I'm not dismissing some of those things. We'll talk about that in chapter 21. But the point he's making here is you don't need that if you would just recognize the king. He goes on to say, verse 20, 22, he said, and then he says to his disciples. So you can see he's kind of like, okay, the, the Pharisees don't get this. I want to make sure my disciples get this. He says to his disciples, verse 22, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out and follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one end or from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Now what's happening here is, is that Jesus is saying, listen, instead of looking for signs, you need to know that when the Son of Man comes in his glory, it'll be like that. There'll be, it'll be, there'll be a suddenness to it. And that suddenness is what motivates our preparedness. We don't know when the Lord's going to come, so we want to have hearts that are prepared. But one of the things that is clear, it's interesting how he says um, in, in verse 21, uh, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. And then he says to the disciples, um, uh, and they will say, look here and look there. Obviously, two different they's there, isn't it? It's the idea in, the, in verses 21 and 22, in a sense, he's saying to the Pharisees that those that are mine, they're not going to say to you, here's the signs. They're not going to focus on that. And as if he's saying to the disciples, those who are saying, look, here it is. Those are the ones that you need to be suspicious of. Not sure if they're actually saying what's true. And again, I'm not dismissing uh, the reality of signs before the Lord's coming. Again, chapter 21, we'll talk about some of that. But what Jesus wants to make it clear to these guys is, listen, we don't look for the signs of the kingdom, but the coming of the king. 
Man, if you know more about, listen, if you know more about the Antichrist than Christ, something's wrong. Jesus wants us to look to him. He's telling the disciples, look, you need to look to him. Then he says this very important, profound thing in verse 25. But, but first he, that is the Messiah, the Son of Man, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. See, the, the problem with signs is we can't always trust them. Not because God doesn't give real signs, but our interpretation of the signs is often wrong. But what we can trust is our suffering Messiah, the King who suffered in our place. We can trust him. We can look to him. See, this is what Jesus would call his disciples to, that he would call us to focus on him who is rejected yet reigns, not focus on the signs that may or may not be indicating that he's coming soon. But also, thinking about the fact that we, we worship this king, we want to serve this king Jesus who's, who's present with us, who's in our midst. There's a, still a sober recognition here that we live, that we are following a king that in the midst of a willfully unprepared world. We're looking for the return of a king in the midst of a place where people go, that's just weird. Or I don't want nothing to do with that. And he gives a couple examples. Look at verse 26. He says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as in the days of Lot, when uh, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Now, now I, I don't want to, definitely don't want to fear monger. We've got enough kind of fear in our lives today. But we also don't want to lighten what Jesus is saying here. We don't want to water it down. Because he's, he's describing how when God brought judgment in the past, he brought judgment to people who were unprepared for it. They didn't think it would ever actually happen. And he gives a couple examples. Of course, Noah. You guys know the story of Noah in, in Genesis chapter 6 to chapter 8, right? What happens? God calls, the Bible talks about the, 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 the earth at that time was a place where the, everyone it was just full of evil. Everyone's thoughts were only evil continually. But it says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of God. And God calls Noah, who's never built any boat that we know of before, I want you to build this huge ark. And I want you to save a remnant of all creation through this ark. So Noah and his sons are building this ark for 120 years and preaching the reality of, of a God who created all things and has the right to judge all things, preaching that reality for 120 years. And what happened? People thought, that dude is nuts. Now, let's be honest. Noah sounds a bit nuts, doesn't he? Can we be honest about that? You, you, we, we, can, we can wax spiritual going, no, he's a, he was a righteous, godly man, and I'm sure he was much more than we are. But the truth is, he sounds a bit nuts. You know why? Because we live in this world that is equally unprepared. That we just think the idea of judgment, what, that's crazy? The idea that God's going to use a boat to save whoever wants to be saved, that's nuts. And so we mock that. But to mock Noah's family is to be unprepared. What's the second uh, issue, the issue of Lot. You guys remember Lot? Lot, not, Lot was um, Abraham's nephew. And uh, Lot had decided, ooh, this area, Sodom and Gomorrah, really nice green plain to, to sort of uh, build his own, uh, kind of his own, uh, not kingdom, but his own home and his home 
his whole house life. And so he's in this place. But we do know about this issue of Sodom, that Sodom was, Sodom and Gomorrah was so bad. The, uh, the prophet Ezekiel says that in, 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 um, in Sodom, that basically they were, their whole hearts were lifted up with pride. It, like they had the sense of no one's ever going to judge us. We can do whatever we want to do. And, and it, it showed itself in, in this really illicit sexual behavior. Some pretty vulgar things that happen. And of course what happens is God sends an angel to Sodom and to warn Lot and his family, you guys got to get out. This is it. There's going to be judgment. You got to get out. And so they, what happens, they leave. But we get this warning in verse 32 where Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. You can read this in Genesis 19 because what happened with Lot's wife? As the angels are pulling, like, it seems like they're pulling these guys out of Sodom. And the Bible says in 1 Peter that, that Lot was a righteous man, that it bothered him what was going on in his culture. But not so much his sons-in-law, it seems, not so much his wife, kind of his daughters. Because as they're getting drug out of Sodom, what happens? The idea is his wife looks back in longing like, oh, no, not my home. Turns into a pillar of salt. Now, now the reason this is important for us to recognize is, is to love life in Sodom is to be unprepared. This is the, the point Jesus is making. If we're like, you know what, those people that are into, you know, God says there's only one little boat that's gonna, that, by, by which you can be saved. That's nuts. And there's a judgment that's nuts. And, oh, you know, life here is really good. We like life in Sodom. Yeah, there's a lot of sexual perversion on the television, but we tend to turn our eyes away from it when it comes on. No, do you love life in Sodom? Do you mock Noah's family, so to speak, if we say you're unprepared? And so Jesus says in verse 30, listen, so it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Because here's the issue. To ignore the Son of Man, to ignore Jesus, is to be unprepared. We don't prepare for judgment. Because let's be really clear in this context. By just trying to be the best people we can be, that's not what prepares us for judgment. What prepares us to meet our maker is to recognize that there's a God who's a God of mercy. Now, now Jesus goes on in the same thing. We're still talking about this idea of the king in our midst and how Jesus wants us to focus on him and not on signs. He wants us to recognize that we live in a willfully unprepared world so that we're not willfully unprepared. But also, listen, he wants us prepared by wanting him more than life itself. So in verse 31, he says, on that day, when this judgment, Jesus comes to bring judgment, he says, on that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. Likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in a bed. One will be taken, the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken, the other left. Then he said, and they said to him, where, Lord? So they go from the Pharisees asking when to the disciples asking where. Where is this horrible stuff going to take place? And Jesus answers, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now, just to be full disclosure, that last verse in verse 37 is also very hard to translate and interpret. But let me just be clear what I think this means. What Jesus is saying here is, listen, He's saying, when he says where the corpse is, there the, the vultures will gather. When they're asking where, they're probably thinking, is this judgment going to happen starting in Jerusalem? 
Is this judgment going to happen in the nations surrounding? I mean, where is this huge judgment going to happen? And Jesus is basically saying, wherever there's death, there's judgment. Wherever people are living lives and the deadness of themselves, there's judgment. Now, I want you to keep this in mind. This is not Jesus scaremongering, but it is Jesus calling us to be sober-minded. And one of the things that we're going to see is, is how these words connect to the two parables Jesus says, both of which have to do with prayer. Because the, the thing that, that we need to understand here is that the Lord does not call us to be focused on the when. I think sometimes the reason we're so consumed with the when, is this going to happen now? Are these going to happen? It's because we're concerned about our own experience. If the Lord comes back soon, I might not have, I might not be married. I might not have kids. I, I, I might not see my grandchildren. If the Lord comes back soon, or, or if there's eight things get really bad before the Lord comes back, then, then, man, I might not be comfortable. I don't know if I'll enjoy actually being a Jesus follower. These are the things that, if we're honest, we actually wrestle with. And these are the things that Jesus is saying, listen, out of love for you, I'm telling you, you need to be prepared. Because the thing that, listen, the thing that should motivate us to follow Jesus is Jesus. We're not going to follow Jesus just because we're afraid of judgment. If you're just afraid of judgment, so you're trying to clean up your life, you'll be like the Pharisee in the parable that we'll talk about next week. But if you're wanting to follow Jesus because you know that he's dealt with judgment, then you'll pray like the publican that we'll see in the parable next week. No, it's about the king in our midst that we need to follow. In fact, listen, this is our ministry. Our ministry is not to warn people of the signs but to point people to Jesus. Listen, remember, Luke and Acts, two parts of the same, uh, two volumes of the same work that, that Luke writes, Luke and Acts. Listen to what Luke writes in the book of Acts, chapter one. So when the disciples had come together, they asked the resurrected Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore your kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times and seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. The disciples asked Jesus, where's this going to happen? It's going to happen everywhere. So guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to send you everywhere by the power of my spirit to testify that I'm God's chosen king. And people can see that I'm God's chosen king. That's the king in our midst. It's important that we see this because the reason Jesus says, wait for the Holy Spirit to come, what's he going to do? He's going to ascend to heaven. He's going to send the Holy Spirit, which he says in John 16 is to our advantage. He tells us in Matthew 28, he's not going to leave us nor forsake us. He sends the Holy Spirit. Why? Because everywhere he sends us to go with the testimony of who he is, he's with us by his Holy Spirit. He is the king in our midst. Everywhere. So that rather than we always are trying to, always trying to figure out, is this the time? Is this the season? Is this going to happen? No, we need to say, we know who the king is. And he'll come when it's the right time. And so we want to testify of that. That's the point that Luke wants to make in both Luke and Acts. But he's not just the king in our midst. He's the king of all justice. Look at chapter 18, verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. 
Now, this is great. Jesus kind of, you know, Luke kind of says, here's the application in case you were wondering. Before we get to the parable, here's how it applies to your life. He told this parable so that we would all learn to pray and not lose heart. In other words, the application is faith is expressed in persistent prayer. Now, this is important specifically when we get down to one of the, th- the questions that Jesus asked later on. Here's, here's the parable, verse 2. Jesus said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. There's two things you need most to be a good judge. You've got to fear God. There's a, there's an, a law that's eternal, so I want to make sure that, that comes to pass. And you need to respect men. I care about what happens to people. This guy didn't have either of them. And what happens, verse 3? And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her, what does it say? Justice. So that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Now, now this is an important thing, okay? It's, it's important that, that we get the main point here. Jesus is saying that even an unjust judge responds to persistent petition so there's no doubt he's encouraging us in our petitions specifically our petitions for justice asking god bring justice lord lord it just what's happened in afghanistan is wrong please lord bring justice the fact that there are more slaves trafficked now than they were in the 1800s lord please bring justice the fact that, that that corporations rip off their employees lord bring Justice, the fact that employees rip off their employers, Lord, bring justice. And we're taught, listen, in this context, to pray this way, Lord, bring justice. We want right to be done. We long for this. And he he uses in in the context here, man, persisting in that, the the idea is, is obvious. Man, you persist in doing that, even an unjust judge will be worn down. But he's not saying, listen, he's not saying, hey, you can wear God down. You can wear God down and he'll finally, all right, oy vey, I'll do it. That's not what he's going to do. The idea is, listen, the idea is, if an unjust judge will do this, how much more our God who guarantees justice? Look at what Jesus says in verse 6. And the Lord said, hear what the unjust, unrighteous judge says. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give just justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? What does Jesus mean by asking that question? What kind of faith is he looking for? The kind of faith that perseveres in prayer in the midst of persecution. You know what's implied here too? Listen, what's implied here is that as we follow Jesus, we're going to experience injustice. Should, should that really surprise us? What, what happened when Jesus, when, when God sends the Son, he's born into this broken world, the sinful world, and what happens? He lives a perfect life. No one could accuse him of any sin. And what does he experience? Radical injustice. Why would we think we're going to experience anything less? 
And yet, here's the, 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 the reason he tells this parable. Listen, you need to know, the God of all justice guarantees you justice. Thomas, forgive me, what, what's the couple's name that we just prayed for? Lynn. No. Len. So Len and Diane, this couple that we're praying for. Probably won't say it now because this is going to be recorded, so you won't say words there. But uh, they are praying that they can go back to a place where they'll probably be killed for their faith. Or they'll at least have to suffer, at least have to live under the fear of death. They're saying, Lord, would you open a door for us to go back to that place? How do you do that unless, listen, unless you believe there's a God of all justice? How do you do that unless you believe the king that you're following, the king that you want to make known? What message would they have to go back to that place and say, yeah, we know life's horrible for you, but guess what? You can have your best, your best life now. If you just believe, you can prosper like I've prospered. Come on. Is that really the message you can bring to a place like that? No, but you can bring the message of that our king guarantees justice because our king faced injustice and by the power of the spirit, by the grace of his father, he endured it, he brought victory so that all of us can experience justice. This is what motivates us. And so this is what Jesus is trying to say, listen, he's trying to say, if you're looking to find your life, I'm going to build my safe little kingdom where I and my children always find justice. If this is your focus all the time, you need to know something. You need to know you're not raising your children the way of the world. I say that as someone who, who did this. I, the thing that scared me most about moving to England was the threats that I felt towards my children. These are the things that the enemy was plaguing my mind with. If you go, this will happen to your children. And you know what? One of those threats came to pass. And, and I think, oh, Lord, why? How long? We were being obedient to you, Lord. Why did you let this happen? But we, we go back in and say, Lord, no. We know that you're the God of all justice. And we want to persevere in prayer that you will give justice to your life. None of our pain will be without a purpose as we follow our king who endured the pain of the cross and the shame of it for us. None of our pain will be purposeless. It has a reason. Listen, this, this, this cry, God, how long, how long, this is all throughout the scriptures. You see it coming from the mouth of Moses. You see it coming from all the prophets. You see it throughout the Psalms. You see it uh, by, by those in the book of Acts who are wondering. We see it in the book of Revelation. The saints crying out, Lord, how long? And here's how it's exemplified. Listen to this, Psalm chapter uh, 13. It says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all, my, all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. You ever feel that way? But notice what the psalmist does. 
Who is he addressing his pain and his concern and his idea of, is there going to be justice? He is persistently, like the widow in the parable, bringing it to his God. And what does he say? But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. I want you to think about what the psalmist is saying there. He has dealt dealt bountifully. You're just talking about how your enemies are winning. You're talking about how all the day you suffer. How would you say God has dealt bountifully with me? Because listen, because he talks about his steadfast love. You know, when the scripture is, is translated, this, this phrase, steadfast love, it's usually this, it's usually, not always, but it's usually this, this Hebrew word, hesed. And it's, it's a word that speaks of God's covenantal love. God's commitment to love his people. God's commitment to do everything he's promised for his people, even in the midst of their unfaithfulness. God's automatic, totally wholehearted, passionate commitment to his people. This is what we hold on to when we pray to the God of justice. God, I'm experiencing injustice. But you're the God of justice who's made a commitment to me that you will not break. And I'm crying out to you. So Jesus tells this parable that, hey, don't don't give up praying. Why do we pray and invest our time and our talent and our treasure in these things uh, that, that we see in the world or, or in these things that we're trying to combat, that we're trying to bring justice into. Why would we fight against the sex trade? Because we serve a God of all justice and we know even if we lose the battle, he wins the war. Why do we battle? Why do we strive to, to make sure that we are employers that treat our employees well? to make sure that they're paid decently? Why do we be employees that work hard for people that don't always seem to appreciate it? Why do we do that? Because we serve a God of all justice who will reward us for seeking justice. Why do we support a group that goes into communist countries? I'm an American, man. We don't like communism. Why do we support a group that goes into communist countries to put children in the families because they're putting children in the families. Justice. And do those things always go well? No. Are we going to end sex trafficking in our lifetime? No. Is every child going to be in a family in our lifetime? No. But one day, soon and very soon, the God of all justice will bring justice if we pray and faint not. That's our part to play. He's going to do it even when we fail to pray. But guess what? He's inviting us to participate in his promise of bringing justice through prayer. God, you do this. For you who've been at Servants for a while, you've noticed that this kind of prayer time that Thomas led this morning, this kind of prayer time is kind of new for us. It might even feel a little bit more formal than some of you are used to. Some of you are used to way more formal than this, but many of you are not used to this kind of formality, especially coming from servants. But you know why we're doing that? We're doing this, one, because we believe God answers prayer, and we want to seek him as a, as a body. I hope you're not just kind of enjoying this. Oh, he prays pretty deep. 
I hope you're joining in there. I hope your heart's saying, yes, Lord, do it, Lord. We agree, Lord. Amen. But also, to teach us how to pray. Let's be honest. If our prayers were all recorded and written down, what would those prayers be? Lord, please give me a raise. Lord, please can North City won just one game. Lord, please let that boy like me. Now, I don't pray that, just to be clear. But this is what our prayers are often about, make my life better. And the prayers that Jesus is encouraging us, the prayers that he says, this is the faith I'm looking for when I return, is the prayer that says, Lord, please don't miss. You're the God of all faith. You see, the, 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 the things that we see that we'll talk about in, in, Luke, in Luke 21, these, these signs, these are signs that are showing how God will bring justice. Things that we, we there's, there's a judgment happening. But he calls us to first and foremost focus on the king of all justice. Lastly, look at this last parable, verses 9 to 14. He's not just the king of all justice, he's the king of all mercy. He also told this parable to some, notice, who trusted in themselves that they were were righteous and treated others with contempt. So again, make it easy for us. Thank you, Luke. Here's the application. This is about faith expressed in humble prayer. Now, 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 before we get into this, how do we know, listen... I want to ask you a question. Let's see if we can answer this from the text. How do we know that we're trusting in ourselves? We, we all kind of know that's a bad thing, but how do we know when we're actually doing that? Listen to the parable, verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Remember, Pharisees, uh, we think Pharisees, boo. Tax collectors also, boo. <laughs> but they would have thought, Pharisees, yay. Tax collectors, boo. That's how they would have heard this parable. And the Pharisee, verse 11, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. How do you know you're trusting in yourself? I, 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 I. There's two ways you know that you're trusting in yourselves and not trusting in God. One is you're focused on what you do. You glory in what you do. Now, now listen, pursuing justice, we just heard, is a good thing. Not extorting people, we just talked about, it's a good thing. Not committing adultery, that's a good thing. Um, uh, you know, not being a tax collector who rips people off, that's a good thing. So these are good things. The Pharisee did good things. But he obviously was trusting those good things. Fasting twice a week, it's not a bad thing. Some of y'all need to fast even more than that, just saying. I give tithes of all that I get, nothing wrong with that. But what does he say? I thank you, I'm not like other men. Listen, if you look down at people and think I'm better than they are, that is a sure sign of trusting in yourself. Bill Martin said, John, you're not going to just nail us again, are you? You're not going to be easier on us today? No? No? Okay, sorry. <laughs> but this is not what I'm saying, is it? This is really what the Lord's saying, isn't it? Isn't this what Jesus is saying? Now listen. We're talking about him being the king of all mercy, right? So what does the tax collector do? Verse 13, but the tax collector standing afar off. In other words, you have this idea of the Pharisee kind of standing in the middle. Look at me. I'll show you how to pray. 
But the tax collector is kind of like off to the side, doesn't want to be seen. He wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beats his breast. He's like, oh, he feels the grief over his own failure. And what does he say? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You know, in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, they call this the Jesus prayer. They call this, this is the prayer that Jesus would have us pray. God, be merciful to me, to me, a sinner. Now, I want to be clear with this, okay? What, what's happening here is not so much that he's saying, Lord, I'm, he's focusing on how bad he is. He, he knows how bad he is. The tax collector is realizing, man, I really am wretched. What have I gotten myself into? I really am wretched, Lord. That I would, in a tax collector's context, that I would align myself with a corrupt government. That I would make my living by taking advantage of people that are much poorer than me. He feels the grief of what he's doing. But the issue here is what he prays. God be merciful to me. Because the idea for mercy here, it is, yes, mercy, as we think mercy. I don't know if you guys ever played this game. I, I'm going to sound really bad when I say this, Sandra. As a, as, a, as, a, as a man who grew up in a home with no women, so I'm giving a little context here. We used to play this game with my brothers and I and then with other people at school called Mercy Quota. And it involved you applying a certain amount of pain to another young man until he say, mercy, great one. It's really fun. <laughs> and so we tend to think of mercy as I have no other choice. I'm being, my arms being twisted or my hands being squeezed or however we, we, Steve Page our friend. And, and I have to say, mercy, great one. That's not the idea here of mercy. The idea here of mercy, in fact, the prayer he's praying is, it's only the word that's used there in the original language in Greek is only used one other place in the book of Hebrews where it says, make atonement for me. He's not just saying, God, don't wipe me out. He's saying, God, do whatever it takes to make me right. Provide whatever it takes to make me right. That is mercy. And you don't pray a prayer like that unless you believe that God is a God of all mercy. That God has provided and will provide whatever is needed to make you right with him. See, here's, here's the reality. The reality is, is there is no, in fact, he says, uh, verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house, what's the word? Justified. And the word justified means to be rendered innocent. Jesus is saying, this man went home after praying in the temple this way, after, after saying, God, please make atonement for me. Provide a way to make me right. He went home rendered innocent. Listen, there is no declaration of innocence without mercy. You're not going to ever stand before God and say, God, and God say to you, hey, I see you as innocent. I see you washed clean because you've tr you're trying really hard. Because you're not like other men. You don't do the bad stuff they do. Because you're more faithful to come to church and tithe than most people. That is not what renders anybody innocent. It's mercy. It's God saying, thank you. It's God saying, I have taken the judgment that should go on you and put it on my own son. There's no innocence without mercy, and there's no hope without humility. 
This is what he says. He says, right? Jesus says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Gosh, I, when, I, when, I find, when I feel myself feeling pretty good about myself, man, I've really overcome this particular sin. It's been weeks and weeks since I've done whatever it is, fill in the blank. I'm doing pretty well. It's often in that, in that stage where I'm starting to feel pretty good about my walk that the Lord shows me, often through another person, other areas where I fall radically short. Not to humiliate me, but to humble me so I go back and say, Lord, I beg your pardon. I beg your pardon. Make it right, Lord. I can't make it right. You make it right in this moment. See this, and this is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, and I'm going to read this scripture, and then we're going to pray, and we're going to go to the Lord's table together so if the music team wants to come back up, I'm just going to read the verse. I'm going to pray. We're going to take communion together. So, so, so here, here's what Paul says. Paul writes, We know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law. No one has, will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. Isn't that freeing though? See, see, listen. We don't know when the Lord's going to come back, but we do know the Lord who's coming back. We don't know when the kingdom will come in its fullness, but we do know the king. And he's the king who's with us right now. And he's the king of all justice. And he's the king of all mercy. So let's seek him out. Father, we pray that you would help us afresh to see Jesus. Lord, I pray for everyone that's here this morning, Lord, that there would be no one here who doesn't know you as Lord and King and Savior. Lord, that there would be no one here who hasn't yet prayed the Jesus prayer. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Hasn't cried out to you for the atonement you've provided through Jesus. Father, we pray that you would do what only you can do by your Holy Spirit in our hearts this morning. Let's just keep an attitude of prayer, heads bowed and eyes closed, and be thinking about the Lord. And I just want to, I just want to encourage you because the thing is, is that I, I really would hate to see anyone here fall into the temptation of I got to put on a big face. I gotta act like I got everything sorted. I, I gotta take communion now because that's what they do at this time in the table. The Bible says for us to examine ourselves before we come into the Lord's table. That the coming to the Lord's table is meant to be a celebration and a thanksgiving and a, a fellowship with our God in this mysterious way through the provision of Christ. It's meant to be a glorious thing, but it's not glorious if we're not examining ourselves, if we're not at that place where we see Jesus as the king of our life. And so if you're here this morning and you've not ever prayed that prayer, I don't mean say the words, I mean your heart hasn't uttered those things to God. You've never come before God and said, God, make atonement for me, a sinner. Do it now. Let this be the first time you pray that prayer. 
the first time you approached the God as the king of all justice and the king of all all of us who have done that. Let's hear this song. Let's sing this song. Let's celebrate the, our good king who's coming soon. Let's trust him to bring justice in our lives where there's injustice. Let's trust him to bring mercy. Let's believe that he's made the atonement that he's made through Christ, that we are proclaiming his death till he comes. Let's celebrate that in our hearts and remember it together at the end. So hold your torch in your end and I'll come back up and we'll We'll pray it together and remember it together. Let's sing this song.